Kenyan technology ecosystem is growing rapidly. You see it all the time with countless new startups emerging and multinationals keep pouring in. As it takes off, what's the history of the space? Where did it come from and what does that mean in terms of who benefits from it today? In other words, who does the system overlook and what needs to change? To tackle these questions, I spoke with Angela Okune and Leonardo Mutuku. Leo and Angela bring a balanced perspective from their experiences as tech entrepreneurs, researchers, as well as founding members of the iHub, one of the early spaces for the tech community in Nairobi. And they also recently wrote a great paper entitled Becoming an African Techpreneur, Geopolitics of Investment in Local Kenyan Entrepreneurship. And reading a little bit from their paper, they write this. Entrepreneurs in Kenya are heterogeneous, with diverse backgrounds, career goals, and personal histories. However, we observe the emergence of the trope of the Kenyan techpreneur that came to be latched on by the state, development aid, and philanthropic centers. We reveal how imperial logics and structures continue to underpin apparently independent initiatives, and that Kenyans figured as techpreneurs have been contesting the narrow construction of its parameters, which ironically appear to disproportionately benefit non-Africans working in the Kenyan tech sector. This was a great discussion, and make sure to follow on our social media to get access to the full paper, contact Angela or Leo, and find out about our upcoming event in Nairobi on June 1st. And with that, enjoy the episode. Welcome, Angela and Leo. A real pleasure to have you both on the podcast. And I'd love to start with just getting a sense of what you both are working on and, and where this paper came from. Sure. Thanks so much for having us, Arnav. It's a pleasure to be in conversation. I have recently finished up a six-year project, also known as my PhD. I was studying the production of research in Nairobi, and especially looking at research data. But currently, I am with a small nonprofit um, called Code for Science and Society. I'm here especially... um, in kind of bringing with me a history of working in Nairobi Tech from 2010 to 2015, where Leo and I were colleagues at the iHub. And so I first moved to Nairobi in 2010 and was part of the kind of founding team behind the research department at the iHub. And so this particular paper that Leo and I worked on together really draws from that experience and really reflects on a lot of those learnings from that period of time. Leo, over to you. Thanks, Angela. Uh, thanks, Anar, for having us on this podcast. My name is Leonida Moteku, but um, everyone calls me Leo. And um, my background is in tech research, but I'm also a tech entrepreneur, which is quite relevant to this conversation. So I currently lead a company called IntelliPro based in Nairobi, where we work with financial and retail institutions to help them adopt machine learning, AI-based technology in, in, in their day-to-day operations. And on the other side, I mean, I straddle quite a number of roles. 
I AI researcher with the Local Development Research Institute, where I'm working to basically understand how um, governments can responsibly adopt AI to support um, decision making, but also to achieve the development goals. So as Angela mentioned, we've quite a lot of history working in the tech scene here in Kenya. I also worked at the iHub from 2011 to 2015, where I founded the Data Science Lab. And so our paper is really a reflection on a lot of what we observed in our time there, but also um, what we think has influenced the current narratives around technology entrepreneurs in Nairobi to date. So, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you both. I think what's great is it's clear that this topic is really important to you both as researchers, but also as practitioners. And so perhaps starting off with where the paper, which I really enjoyed, kind of started off is the Nairobi text ecosystem that people encounter today is very different from the ecosystem we found back in 2010. And I'd love to get a sense of what does that mean for you both? So I think we have had the great opportunity to observe like how the texting has evolved from a very close-knit and small community to a somewhat very diverse ecosystem with, with different actors. But when we started out in 2010, a lot of the technology, entrepreneurship and innovation tended to happen within private spaces or in if there's any emergency of a community, they tended to be around events or at coffee shops uh, where people would try to the still very expensive internet from cafes. So as we mentioned, we joined the iHub in 2010 just around as it was being formed and the motivation for setting up a space like the iHub was really to see if uh, you bring in different entrepreneurs and different um, actors who are very interested in technology into one space, what sort of innovations or as the founder Eric liked to say, serendipity would emerge from this convergence of a community in a space. So of course the the Texting has was not just the iHub, but it was quite uh, prominent then, but has grown over time to involve many other technology hubs, university spaces, and also just entrepreneurs who tend not to want to be in the limelight, but actually doing groundbreaking stuff. The prominence has moved from just a single space to more of a very, very dynamic community. And perhaps maybe Angela, especially when it comes to some of its origins, is it something that starts in 2010 or goes much further back? Good question. I think that we often are very presentist and think only that something is happening in the very moment. But actually, the tech scene in Nairobi, we came to learn, Leo and I, of even the older histories before 2010 when we joined, right, and getting connected with some of the very early entrepreneurs who were there starting businesses from the early 1990s. Entrepreneurs tended to focus on different technology. So a lot of like enterprise resource kinds of systems or, or things that were not necessarily mobile tech. And so what we really saw from when Leo and I really started getting involved in the 2010s um, 
were really this huge spike in the adoption of mobile technology across the board by many Kenyans. And that led to this kind of piggybacking onto that to develop applications and different kinds of services and products related to mobile phone adoption. So in our paper, we really focus on a, a kind of moment in Kenyan history um, in 2008 when when there was the post-election violence period and that is kind of a catalyst for a lot of shifts i would say because the development sector also has a long history in kenya but i think it was from the pev period where the development sector and kind of ictd that is to say information communication technology for development shortened into ictd really kind of started to take off both from the practitioner side and also from the kind of researcher side. And so what we witnessed was this incredible influx of interest from development actors who began to see mobile technologies as a potential way to kind of address poverty challenges, development challenges. And so really seeing as technology as a, a solution. So so I think that really iHub was part of that. So PV occurred at around the same period. Safaricom also launched its M-Pesa service that also got a lot of development practitioners very excited. And then out of the, the PUV period, Ushahidi really emerged as a way to crowdsource for ground truthing, if you will, or information from the crowd related to information gaps at that period. And so the building of this, this coming together of a community to develop this open source platform, which then was seen as something that could be scaled to other contexts. And so Ushahidi really emerged from there. Out of Ushahidi, this desire for a space really led to the iHub. And so, and then the iHub again led to all these other various initiatives. And today, I think mobile tech is less of the focus of a lot of tech entrepreneurs. And so it's interesting to continue to see how how what is invested in and what is seen as the next big thing continues to shift. But sometimes the structural elements or the way that they're seen as solutions doesn't. So I've started joking with with folks that blockchain is now seen as the next tech solution, right? And so I think we need to recognize these kind of cycles and to begin to learn from them so that we are not repeating the same mistakes. So it's clear the Kenyan tech ecosystem is one that's grown immensely, is known across the world with, with monikers like Silicon Savannah and otherwise. But I'm curious, what are the kind of drivers behind the tech scene and what are some of the consequences it's had in terms of what it's seen as and what's supported? Well, I'll just throw out one word. I think funding <laughs> is one of the heavily discussed topics. There was a big debate around 2015 or so about whether or not the Nairobi tech scene was being corrupted by development funding. I think that the question of like how funders, whether from development or philanthropy or government, how they 
are shaping the conversations and also what gets funded and who gets funded. And so I think that's something that Leo and I try to unpack in the paper and open up a discussion. I, I think when, when you want to look at basically what is viewed as innovation, and again, here it's up to you to decide who is doing the observation, you have to follow the money. And, and one thing that we try to unpack in the paper is how a lot of what was seen as innovation tended to be some solutionist product with an aim of development. If it didn't have that development agenda or uh, some of these um, companies which you wouldn't mention were calling the great African challenges, if, if it wasn't solving for those, then was it really viewed as technology innovation that was worth funding or worth giving audience to? And even as we look at the kinds of policy that government was crafting to support the texting, it kept on pushing the same narrative that ideally these innovators were um, were worth supporting if they were solving development challenges, which of course uh, lends to the question whether the texting as it was and technology entrepreneurship emerged because of government absconding its duties to support just basic needs and what it's supposed to do for its citizens. So the evolution of the texting, we see that a lot of the influence that the various funders had, be it the philanthropists or in international organizations, even just Silicon Valley investors who were starting to look at the space, they tended to look at, uh, first of all, social enterprises, even if they were for profit, so long as they had what is called impact, those tend to be more successful and more provided more prominence and audience than, let's say, what might be considered in other spaces as lifestyle businesses or just uh, general businesses that uh, might not necessarily aim to influence a, a, a massive population. So I, I think a lot of that uh, definition on, on what was innovation and technology uh, tended to um, the, the backstop at who was funding that and who was uh, also providing the narratives. And I, what I loved in the paper is you guys wrote at some point how really kind of the, the Kenyan techpreneur has to perform as kind of the continent's technical savior, solving Africa's poverty problems. And this notion of development fitted very well with NGOs and and the IMF and others who wanted to go kind of beyond the desire of Kenyan citizens driving their own initiatives as groups and into kind of the individual. And I'm, I'm curious there, as you guys highlighted some of the consequences of this singular narrative of innovation and, and Kenyan techpreneur, what are kind of examples of that consequence? One of the things we observed was that there's this rise of trainings and boot camps and basically upskilling of what was seen as this kind of deficit Kenyan techpreneur. And, and this was basically an opportunity then to justify the arrival of various external quote unquote experts to come in and then train up local entrepreneurs. Again, remembering that many of these entrepreneurs have been around doing this work since the 1990s. And so kind of replaying a a very long critique about development projects that continue to give power to the donors and to the external institutions, that training model then continued to kind of create this narrative about this underskilled African techpreneur. 
I, I think that this idea of capacity building really has in built in it this idea of like white superiority and expertise that relies on this construction of the incapable African or African countries, if you want to take it at even a bigger scale. So I think what that has led to is this continued programming. And so this is where I want to call attention to this double bind, where like, it's not to say that there is complete capacity and that we don't need to continue to build that work. But the double bind is that perhaps it's not within this particular frame that this external structures are setting it up to be. Specific examples would be that these trainings are geared on these individuals as opposed to trying to address some of the systems that these individuals have to operate within. We find that techpreneurs are trying now to model themselves to what has worked. Um, and what has worked generally is that a lot of companies that have either white founders or African founders tend to attract a lot more investment than companies that are fully owned by, by Kenyan entrepreneurs. Part of the reason why these patterns in funding emerged based on the investors themselves is that they tend to feel like they might not necessarily identify with with the profile of um Kenyan entrepreneurs who they think might lack more experience to manage these funds that they'll be putting in to this company. Some of those problematic uh, views that that like uh, Kenyan entrepreneurs and especially the Nairobi entrepreneurs needed to be capacitated further before the investors feel like they understand the potential of, of the entrepreneurs. And the data on this is clear and you guys cite in your paper the fact that one report found 90% of funding for East African startups went to white immigrant founders. And there's a kind of one-size-fits-all Silicon Valley-style approach to investing. And I think that, as you guys say, kind of once the development actors came in to drive the innovation funding, and as opposed to government-led or more locally-led, that then tilts it to what those decision-makers want and what they prioritize. And so it also affects what problems are being solved for and which ones get funding. And so innovation, and it sounds like technologists uh, within Kenya have to start focusing on issues which to some extent are a bit sexier to what are the current problems of the day that people are focusing on in other parts of the world. And so you can look at the rise of fintech, but also crypto and blockchain and question, is this something that suddenly is addressing a growing need within Kenya or is it gaining its prominence more because it's what funders and investors outside of Kenya are now looking to be interested in? I think there is this performance of the kind of local that is often required in order to access particular capital to show that one is really in touch with a local community and is tackling particular needs, but it needs to be within a particular frame that is legible to foreign venture capitalists or private philanthropists who also have their own kind of their particular worldview of what are the main issues that need to be tackled and their own kind of agendas. And so 
by constantly requiring these individuals to report out to whether it's foreign venture capitalists or private philanthropists or international development aid, instead of really growing their own business and listening to their customers who might be saying something entirely not sexy that wouldn't fit within the worldview of these external um, funders, the, the Kenyan techpreneur in some ways is, is in this kind of fraught position because really, despite having this image of being independent and very like grounded with the local community. And so I think part of what we're also doing is complicating this idea of what it is to be quote unquote local and showing that there there are much more complex ties that go beyond just the nation state necessarily. And often people are kind of constrained into this box to perform a particular localness that actually is only legible to people maybe who are not local. Because if it really was ex- extremely like local, it might not be legible to the external actors. Yeah, definitely. I was reading a statistic the other day that 83% of funds raised by Kenyan startups had CEOs who studied outside of Kenya. And that denotes who are the dominant players who get the interest, get the focus. And I'm curious, who benefits from the system? So it highlights kind of some of those who get overlooked, but who's benefiting and who kind of continues to drive this system? Just to, to bounce off of that, the Village Capital Report was released in 2017. And Leo and I joke that it's kind of referred to as the Village Capital Report, even though they've produced several, because it really caused so much discussion and it was circulated so widely within the Nairobi tech community because it debunked a lot of the kind of narratives that I mentioned earlier about the lack of skills or capacity of Kenyan entrepreneurs. And the report really found that investors were using things like, did the founder attend a prestigious university? Is the company affiliated with selective business networks? Were they recommended by an insider investor that they know And so all of those aspects really were the reason why the social capital of white immigrant founders is able to then enable them access to capital that others would not be able to access. And I think the jury is still out on who actually benefits from this influx of capital, especially if it is being directed towards, uh, let's say, immigrant founders. And I know that there are quite a number of knee-jerk reactions trying to address this issue, for instance, trying to create uh, more nationalist facing a policy, maybe to insist that companies should have at least, you know, a Kenyan founder for them to be registered as tech companies. But again, it goes back to us, is the question around impact towards the technology entrepreneur themselves, or or are we talking about uh, the impact of the actual end users of, of this innovation? So I think the jury is out in terms of when we talk about impact of this funding, who necessarily we're talking to because at the end of the day it is good that these great innovations are being funded and i'm curious because there's kind of a a tension there with regards to focusing on both supporting kenyan-led initiatives and those initiatives which might be most beneficial to more kenyans in the country and they probably largely align but sometimes they might differ and uh, imagine a scenario where i put you both let's say as a head of a venture capital firm or an investing wing, what would be 
the kind of criteria or the elements you would look for to determine the kind of entrepreneur and uh, startup you would want to be supporting? I don't think I will ever work for a venture capital for a firm, so I've never put myself in this position. But for me, and this is something you know that has been called in the literature as like whitewashing, many entrepreneurs have recognized that there is particular social capital that is necessary and enabled through having white wazungus on their on their founding team and so they're playing the game and have recognized to, the need to have such partnerships on their team and have brought on different members as much as it's important to have kenyan-led initiatives i think what we're calling for is not as leo referred to as knee-jerk response to just turn into a tide of representation when i'm reminded of a period during decolonial 1960s when all the white colonialists were replaced by black african representatives but in spite of that as post-colonial scholars have have well written about the underlying kind of colonial systems were not dismantled mm-hmm. and so i hesitate to just say that we only need to replace white bodies with black bodies because that's not the kind of radical fundamental change that's needed but i also don't want to be misunderstood to say that we shouldn't continue to promote and have more kenyans invested in and so forth i'm also trying to call into question that we shouldn't just be happy and satisfied and say we're done when we have better representation by kenyan leaders in the tech community. We really need to continue to pull our our focus out to look at the systems as opposed to the individuals because by focusing excessively on the individuals we're actually just reproducing the same kind of individualization of this when in fact we need to look at the system. So to give a one very concrete example of how the systems continue to perpetuate this kind of inequity is the 2011 Immigration Act which I think most foreigners are probably pretty familiar with in in Kenya because most of them have to go through Nyaya house and and get their paperwork done but basically the class D I believe it is states that any foreign hire needs to actually have a skill that cannot be found locally cannot be found in Kenya and so that is the rationale to give a work permit for a non-Kenyan and so this inevitably creates a, a prioritization for white immigrants to be hired at a particular level in the kind of work hierarchy and a focus on getting them in these high positions and justifying high pay which inevitably create company org charts that have a lot of white folks up at the top and brown and black folks down at the bottom and i think that looking at the ways that immigration policies which are ostensibly meant to actually support and help Kenyans but are actually justifying and being used to keep particular groups at a particular place in the work hierarchy such such policies need to be looked at carefully to see what are their actual effects even if they're put in place ostensibly to help Kenyans but but what are the effects of such systems mm-hmm. and, and if I may wear my AI researcher hat for a second one thing that of course we talk about when building AI is how there's the likelihood of exacerbating bias that 
exists in the physical world. So if I was to maybe wear, become a VC for a day, one of the things I have to acknowledge is what are my biases? Uh, what do I tend to personally view as a, a successful entrepreneur, a fundable entrepreneur? And, and outline that and try and acknowledge my reasoning behind that. Is it an architect based on all I know and all my experience? And, and especially if I'm operating in a market that I tend to not have any long-held history and context in, then I have to acknowledge what that bias is. And then just like in academic paper and in research, maybe create a peer review committee. Do these funding decisions have to be made just by the two people, the three people, or how do we open up to critique about these decisions to different viewpoints and arguments for different kinds of entrepreneurs who we might not necessarily have have considered previously. And, and I tend to like this entrepreneur in residence approach that a lot of VC firms tend to have, primarily because they are a way to maybe diversify the scouts and the pools of applications they might get if they were just funders alone doing this outreach. So maybe opening up this process of funding decisions and a bit more of transparency to it then might help. And of course, there's always the argument that at the end of the day, what I do with my money is 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 my own um, decision. But if you claim to uplift a, a community or support development in a specific context, then that can't be your go-to reason for not opening up how you you view investments. I think that's really helpful, Leo. And could you expand a little bit on this kind of entrepreneur in residence? What does the structure look like and where, yeah, what enables it to work best? So I can give the example. I know we talked about fintech and questioning whether it is just um, a response to a global trend or um, those solutions are things that local communities really need. The DFS Lab, it's one of the ventures that I have observed that tend to have entrepreneurs in residence. And these tend to be um, entrepreneurs who have actually grown and exited or have had successful companies in the, the markets that they're trying to invest in and invite them to either use their networks to access an increased pool of potential fundees who might not necessarily have been spotted or invested in directly by the managing partners of these funds. And what I like about this is that a lot of times investors tend to say that they are investing in a person as opposed to in the idea or in the company. So when you have entrepreneur in residence, like uh, what the DFS Lab does, the idea uh, is hopefully that the people uh, or the um, companies that they're recommending for due diligence or to be funded in are, are companies where the entrepreneurs are vouching for someone. There's this like justification why uh, you should invest in an entrepreneur, not just because of their education, but maybe even just what they have been able to do or their curiosity or, or their personal achievements that may not necessarily pass an application. There's 
like that additional human element to reviewing, to identifying, and to spreading word within communities that there's a fund here that is very interested in you. The other thing is uh, we talk about is the issue of access. I mean, if you are unable through your networks to unlock this funding, then you wouldn't have known that you could apply for that money. And funding is relationship-based. So if you are pulling uh, people who are already active within the communities to also support your deal flow or your pipeline of, of potential investments, then for sure you are sort of opening it up to people beyond the archetype or the pedigree that you'd typically look at. If I can just chime in, I loved Leo's ideas and especially the concept of kind of how to build in structures to give away power that the funders often hold. So often it feels like the funders hold all of the power. And I think building in mechanisms that can really better distribute this power. I joke that I can't imagine working for a venture capital <laughs> company, but I actually, now that I reflect on it, I, in some ways I'm managing, a, I'm managing a community-owned fund where basically philanthropies mo- mostly have given a set amount of funding, whether 200,000 or what have you, into this pot which is then governed by the community itself. And so the funds are are for data science events and supporting communities to run data science events. And the selection committee is made up of previous grantees. It's made up of um, members from the wider data science community. And they do the selection by reviewing applications and coming up with a shortlist. And then the, the entire fund is managed by an advisory committee, which is, again, comprised of maybe more senior members within the data science community. And part of why I was really excited about this work is that we need more creative models to govern in a more equitable manner, this kind of funding and distribution of capital, because I think that's really where we need to to really be creative and focus our energy now. I think that's where funders can also really demonstrate their real commitment to this kind of work. There's a lot of lip service. There's a lot of rhetoric around these topics, especially in 2022. But I think what we're looking for are are actual demonstrations of a commitment to this kind of, of equity. What is really important, I think, is to develop longer time horizons and like longer term relationships that grow and change and mature over time and that are held together by something that is more than just a call for proposals or more than just, oh, there's a VC opportunity here. Like these should be relationships that are built on something else. I think that notion of looking to the process by which one selects to achieve an ambition of, let's say, be it supporting more local Kenyan entrepreneurs or otherwise, looking at the actual process in which you embed that as opposed to just the end result of numbers of X or Y in certain companies or certain nationalities is really important, not just from a tokenistic perspective or lip service, as you're mentioning, but because that fundamentally changes how you view what the decision-making process understands and looks at. And drawing back a little bit to kind of who wins in the current system, one group that we haven't mentioned too much, but has been very evident 
in the last two, three years in Nairobi in particular is the presence of multinationals, be it kind of Microsoft who have come in or many other players are setting up quite large bases. And I'd love to hear what the impact has been of that and where have you seen it play out? I think like any growing metropolitan environment, it's been exciting, of course, to say that, oh, we have a Microsoft uh, Developer Center here, or we have AWS. From a macroeconomics perspective, it, it sounds very exciting. But I mean, now for, for entrepreneurs, there's been quite a lot of mixed reactions to what that means. Already, we've been spending a lot of time talking about how a lot of entrepreneurs are underfunded because of um, those systemic issues and capital might not necessarily be available to, to expand a lot on human resources and what these companies tend to do in the short term is when they set up here the first thing they'll do is look for the best of the best and they tend to get this from startups because they are the most dynamic the most innovative environments for, for technology so Kenyan startups have been complaining that they are losing like really good talent that they've spent a lot of time, which is a big resource for them and money and energy to train and to upskill them to work in this under-resourced environment. And then, of course, as a Microsoft or as an IBM, you're not going to come and pay meager salaries. You'll try to be competitive and have international rates apply. So in the short term, what is happening is that tech startups are losing really good talent to these multinationals. But I think that this problem has to be looked at in a way beyond just those short-term pains and effects to in the long term, what does that mean? Um, that means that there's a potential to show that technology is worth investing in, in general. And so there will be, hopefully, uh, a lot more of these ex-Microsoft employees becoming entrepreneurs and with, with a stash of cash and being able to invest back in the space. But that has to be maybe five or six years down the line when their shares are vested and they can start new companies from out of pocket. It's a very, I guess, uh, bittersweet moment right now. I mean, I'm a, an entrepreneur myself and I know how expensive it is to hire new talent and how painful it is to, to grow talent to uh, a level where they get to be pushed by these companies. So I think I'm excited, but at the same time, of course, uh, we're struggling and we're losing out right now, but uh, it is good for the country in the long term. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, does it also kind of push you and other entrepreneurs into having to look for funding and quite soon and quite quickly just to be able to start to hire at the quality you need? Unfortunately, yes. But I think the best companies at the end of the day should not be necessarily VC funded, but they should also be customer funded. So if you're one on that customers need, then there's the likelihood that, you know, your sales will pay for your company. But again, um, that's why we are seeing uh, a lot of these startups going for those massive raises when Previously, they might not have needed to just to scale, to grow and to keep up 
with with this dynamic space that's being created by talent shifting from the startup space to enterprise and and seeing how we can now grow startups from just maybe projects to now proper growth businesses is growth again tied back to what Silicon Valley decides is growth and scale. You're being pushed by these external factors to approach it in ways that might not necessarily be sustainable in the long run. So I think it's a, a really a part of a big discussion of like what are the metrics and indicators by which these kinds of innovations and startups are being measured and judged to be successful. I do want to make the point that even these big institutions, if they are in it, they need to be in it with a particular commitment. Because if you just look at the recent history uh, of tech ThoughtWorks, a tech design company that had a, a big African headquarter, I think in Uganda, closed within five years with no more presence on the continent. And just in 2020, Safe Boda closed its Kenya office. Google's Loon project closed after a lot of hype around that. So I think that this idea that there is this linear tech progress narrative, I think that's also really an illusion and that even these foreign tech companies, sometimes they leave quickly once capital and profits dry up. And so I think (laughs) it would be good to get them to really have some deeper roots and really be part of the community. Fantastic. And maybe looking to kind of some of the takeaways from your paper, I'm curious where you guys hope your paper will go and in what spaces to have (laughs) the larger effect you hope. I think for me, we are seeing a lot of tech entrepreneurs starting to push back on some of these demands of them by donors or the state or VCs. And so I think to open up space for them to continue to do so and maybe help connect these different tech entrepreneurs with each other so that there can be this kind of sustained analysis of the system as opposed to feeling like it's just on the individual to have to do this kind of labor of standing up to these demands. I totally agree with you. I I think this paper is just the beginning of an advocacy tool within me to show a lot of these conversations have been had more informally or in a few articles here and there and we did um, our best to sort of begin historicizing how the tech scene has evolved over time and what those implications are. Wonderful and I think one thing I've really enjoyed about our discussion today but also is mirrored in the paper is whereas this podcast and I might kind of take one angle what you guys present are both that kind of bittersweet nature of a lot of what is going on Uh, any last thoughts that you'd like to leave the audience with I think for me to sum it all up I think questioning the kind of binary between global and local and to recognize that Kenyans are very cosmopolitan, Nairobi is very cosmopolitan, and that we are operating in a world that goes beyond these kinds of binary categories. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think acknowledging the different contexts that motivate different people and being very upfront about that is one of the first ways that we can start breaking some of these systemic challenges that we, we highlight. And that being said, I don't think we're prescribing one approach over the other. Wonderful. Well, to everyone listening, I think they should go check out your paper um, once it comes out. Thank you both, Angela and Leo, very much for your time. And it's been a pleasure chatting on this topic. Thank you so much, Arnav. Thank you, Arnav, for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed this, check out Leo and Angela's great paper that I'll link in the description. We're also running open events in Nairobi with one coming up on June 1st on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion in Kenyan expat workplaces and which ones are missing. Follow on our social media for the details.